the History Channel original podcast. After Alice dies, T.R. is devastated. So he decides to start a whole new existence in North Dakota. It was a perfect place for him to read, to write, to reflect, to grieve, to hunt, and to seek adventure. Roosevelt called it a grim fairyland because it was a real darkly romantic landscape. The wide open West just captured his spirit. He had come to believe that the frontier was the test of the American character. From the History Channel, this is Making Teddy. I'm your host, Andre DeShields. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Theodore Roosevelt is a man consumed by grief. His mother and his wife Alice have died on the same day in 1884. Roosevelt leaves his newborn daughter in the care of his sister and heads alone to the Dakota Badlands. There, he builds a ranch with the help of two woodsmen he trekked with back in Maine after his father's death six years earlier. He names the place Elkhorn. Presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin says the darkness in Roosevelt was apparent to everyone around him. It's a constant flight from sadness to go to the next stage. He's asked Bill Sewell and Will Dow, the two guides, from his expedition to Maine to come out to help him build a ranch. And Sewell said that Roosevelt seemed to have nothing to live for. The ranch is 35 miles north of the town of Medora, North Dakota. He learns to ride a western style, to herd and rope cattle, and hunt on the banks of the Little Missouri. Historian Leroy G. Dorsey says the challenge of life in the Dakotas stirred and inspired Roosevelt. People on the frontier had to contend with wild animals and weather events and Native Americans. So those people had to demonstrate their strength. And that's why for him, the frontier myth was America's story. Historian Edward T. O'Donnell. When Roosevelt thought of the West, he thought of what we would call manifest destiny, that the West was where America was gonna achieve its initial phase of greatness. If you wanna sum it up in a single image, it's that John Gast painting, American Progress, shows Westward migration, it shows an angel of democracy floating above the settlers and miners and ranchers all heading west. And Native Americans are fleeing off the scene because they're no match for what's coming. Most white Americans of Roosevelt's era believed that the indigenous people held no rights to their land. However, they did believe in their own right to settle the land and assumed that the Native Americans would either die off or convert to their way of life. 
Like a lot of Americans in the late 19th century, Roosevelt is of two minds regarding Native Americans. He sees Native Americans as savages that are in the way of progress, but also paragons of nobility and strength. Roosevelt is reported to have remarked, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. So while he was castigating Native Americans for their savagery and subhuman behavior, almost in the same sentence, he'd write about, well, they were, sometimes they were pushed to it by whites. So you could see him trying to do this sort of even-handed account of the slaughter that was going on on the frontier on both sides. During the years he lived in the Badlands, Roosevelt spent much of his time alone, reading, writing, and venturing out on solitary hunting trips. Historian Clay Jenkinson. He would go out alone for days at a time to test himself. He would just take a tea bag and a biscuit and a rifle and think, I'll live off the land. I'm going to prove that I can do this. In his 1885 book, Hunting Trips of a Ranchman, Roosevelt wrote, Nowhere, not even at sea, does a man feel more lonely than when riding over the far-reaching, seemingly never-ending plains. And after a man has lived a little while on or near them, their very vastness and loneliness and their melancholy monotony have a strong fascination for him. Jared Cohen is the author of Accidental Presidents. The Badlands was no place for a gentleman from New York. This was a rough, rough place. Roosevelt wrote... The Badlands seemed to be stranger and wilder than ever, the silvery rays turning the country into a kind of grim fairyland. In the darkness, there would be no sound but the rhythmic echo of the hoofbeats of the horses and the steady metallic clank of the steel bridle chains. Tweed Roosevelt is Teddy Roosevelt's great-grandson. He says it took time for Roosevelt to prove himself to the local cowboys. He was looked upon askance. Here was this eastern dude who had a penchant to dress up in fancy sort of faux cowboy clothing, the fringe jackets and the like. He's not just playing cowboy. He actually becomes a cowboy. He participates in the roundups. He wants to prove that he can stay in the saddle as long as the cowboys can, and he wants to prove it to them, but maybe also to himself as well. He didn't shelter himself. He worked hard to get them to admire him. He said, what's it going to take for you to respect and admire me? And then he did that. Just as he had worked hard to overcome his physical frailty as a boy, Roosevelt brings his philosophy of a strenuous life to the frontier. Each rancher would send a string of horses and a couple of men, and they would all spend a month or six weeks together, moving slowly through the territory, rounding up all the strays. And Roosevelt loved it. I mean, he absolutely loved it. And it was very difficult, somewhat dangerous work. In one of the stampedes, his horse threw him. He broke the point of his shoulder, which is a very painful thing, and he couldn't leave the roundup. So he just dealt with it. He just lived with this excruciating pain. Even in this unlikely setting, a fish out of water, he becomes a leader. T.R. was sort of assigned informal deputy sheriff. He was asked to do various duties, mostly going and arresting somebody and bringing them back. He's no longer that Eastern dude. He's this hybrid American. 
at that time in America, there was such a gap between the Western people in the East, between the country and the city, between the rich and the poor. And he's beginning to bridge those gaps by all of his experiences. He also has an intellectual transformation. You know, he starts writing about winning the West and he becomes enchanted by the idea of conservation. It's an idea that will remain with him throughout his life. The natural world has touched a deep chord within him, and he says that the romance of his life has begun. He changes physically. He gains 30 pounds, and it's all bone and muscle and grit. And his voice, which had been a falsetto voice, is now strong enough to drive oxen. So it's a huge change in his physical demeanor. There's also a change in his emotional demeanor. Somehow being out there began to heal him. He began to look forward to the future again. The winter of 1887 is known as the Great Die-Up. Heavy snow and freezing temperatures kill hundreds of thousands of cattle across the West. Roosevelt loses 60% of his livestock. He decides then to return to New York. But he remains grateful his entire life for his experiences at Elkhorn Ranch. He later writes, I owe more than I can ever express to the West. And then he comes back to the East. He rekindles his relationship with Edith Kermit Garrow. Roosevelt had known Edith Carroll since childhood, says historian Stacy A. Cordery. Edith and Theodore were sweethearts when they were quite young. Edith had been sort of a member of the Roosevelt family. The two bonded over books and a love of nature. And the family thought that they might get married, but T.R. went up to college and then he met Alice and he married Alice, but Edith hung in there. They were a very good fit. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Edith Caro and Teddy Roosevelt marry in London in December of 1886. On their return to the United States, Roosevelt still feels called to a life in politics. New York Republicans are looking for a reform candidate to run for mayor of New York City. The party had become fractured, and its leaders hope to find a candidate who can unify them even if they stand little chance of winning the election. 
Roosevelt accepts the nomination, knowing he faces long odds, because the race will establish him in New York politics and earn him the goodwill of the Republican Party bosses. The press dubs him the cowboy candidate. He finishes third, behind Democrat Adam Hewitt and the United Labor Party candidate, Henry George. Roosevelt will need to look elsewhere for his next role. When they first got married, he's offered a rather low-level job to be on the Civil Service Commission, and so he and Edith moved to Washington. He's an outsized personality for the job, but it stokes the flame of reform that his father had seated with him. His time on the Civil Service Commission in Washington shapes Roosevelt's values, says Edward Kahn, professor of history at Norwich University. For Roosevelt, civil service reform guided his life. It's the basic idea that positions in government should not be based on how much money you paid for your position. They should be based on your merit. So there was a fundamental fairness involved here. He said he wanted the farmer's son and the mechanic's son to have the same chance as a son of privilege. And he fought to establish that civil service and make it rooted in our understanding of how government should work. It was in Washington that Roosevelt met William Howard Taft, and the two of them became really good friends. It was a really pleasant time. He's there for six years, and they have a big family by then. Alice, of course, is there, and then they have Theodore, Kermit, Ethel, and they have Archie. Washington is one of the happier experiences of Edith's life. Edith is happy in Washington, but Theodore longs for a bigger challenge. His role in the Civil Service Commission is largely bureaucratic and hardly suits his ambition and boundless energy. When he's offered the position of New York Police Commissioner in 1895, he sees it as an opportunity to revive his stagnant political career. But by the time the Roosevelts return, he finds the city has changed. New York City was a growing city, bursting at the seams, huge infrastructure projects, millions of dollars being spent. It had more than doubled in population, it was the industrial center of the country. 12,000 factories, half a million factory workers. It had Wall Street, it had 100 live theater companies. New York was the Las Vegas of the 1890s. Men came to New York to have a good time. They drank too much, they drank all night. There were dance clubs. There were maybe 40,000 prostitutes. There was gambling, there were casinos. It was an unbelievably bustling, dynamic, crowded place. What New York was going through and the pressures on New York is what was happening all throughout the United States. The rapid urbanization, vast numbers of immigrants coming, industrialization, America becoming an economic power. Titans of industry like the Astors, Carnegie's, the Morgans, the Vanderbilts, and the Roosevelts brought tremendous wealth to New York. At the same time, an influx of immigrants found an expensive city where they could, at best, hope to scrape by. Gilded Age New York had much in common with present-day Las Vegas. It was a haven for parties, underground gambling, opium dens, and prostitution. Historian Khalil Gibran Mohammed. 
the great wealth of the robber barons and the railroads and the fossil fuel industry and the John Rockefeller and Standard Oil, all that money ended up in New York City one way or the other. And the abject poverty of those at the bottom of this economy was such a vivid display of inequality. Once again, Roosevelt thinks he can be part of the solution. It's what his father would have wanted. So in 1895, Roosevelt accepts an appointment as commissioner of the New York City Police Department. Remember, Roosevelt's image of public service is that one that's instilled in him by his father, that public service is noble, and you only go into public service as a policeman or as a mayor uh, to do good, to make the community better. And here is, you know, an institution that is rotten to the core. It's a challenge. He wants to take it on. And it's the right time and the right moment for his kind of leadership. In New York City in the 1890s, the police department has a level of corruption that is staggering. In 1895, the report of the Lexow Commission comes out and it is full of lurid details about kidnapping schemes where people are jailed with no cause until they sell their store and give the money to the police. Witnesses are brought in front of the investigating committee beaten half to death, one of them with their eye hanging out of their socket. The patrolman on the beat took a bribe to let the push carts stay in place more than 15 minutes. He took a bribe to let the saloon owner stay open after one in the morning. Brothels were unbelievably lucrative. It was $50 a month. One district on the Lower East Side had 50 brothels. $2,500 back then was 75,000 in modern. Times 12 months, you're looking at a million dollars. And this was all shared among the captains, the inspectors, and the local politicians. And the source of this corruption starts at the top. When Theodore Roosevelt steps into the police commission, Thomas Burns is the utterly corrupt chief of police, the tip of the pyramid of this giant organized crime syndicate. So Burns is almost untouchable. He's powerful, he's connected to Tammany Hall, and yet Roosevelt takes him on and says, this guy has got to go. Roosevelt becomes known as someone who is not afraid to go after any enemy. It was an early indicator of a man who was willing to take on power and influence by using the kind of muscular position of public authority uh, for the purposes of putting down the kind of illicit corruption of which the police department was central to. But it's one thing for T.R. to believe that he can take on the boxing champion at Harvard. It's quite another to take on the most dangerous, powerful man in New York. Burns is quite ruthless in dealing with his adversaries in terms of doing them in, creating scandal around them, or, you know, physically harming them. And so Roosevelt has all of these things to fear. And so it's very much like the bully he confronts in the bar uh, out west. He had learned that even if he, deep down inside, was afraid of someone, that if he acted like he wasn't afraid and sort of willed himself not to be afraid, that he wouldn't be afraid and to stand up to the bully, to stand up to the corrupt person, to stand up to the evildoer and triumph. So Roosevelt threatened to prosecute Burns over corruption and taking bribes from some of the wealthiest people in New York City. Roosevelt wanted to achieve the impossible here. He wanted to clean up the dirtiest, loudest, roughest city in the United States. And Burns decides to resign. Having excised the route, Roosevelt is ready to cut out the rest of the rot. Once he had changed the top leadership, then he knew he had to change the entire culture because it really was a way of life in the police department. 
And that meant understanding the policemen on the beat at night in New York. So what he decides is that he's got to have his own first-hand information. Roosevelt seeks out his friend Jacob Rees, a photojournalist who has recently become famous for writing an expose called How the Other Half Lives, that laid bare the grim conditions of tenement life. Roosevelt knows that Rees got a lot of his material by prowling the city after midnight. Jacob Rees knew the back streets and tenements of New York City better than anybody else. And he matched that with a new technology of flash photography. So he could go into the darkest of the stale beer dives. He could go into the underground flop houses. He could go into the basement tenements and catch a literal snapshot of how the other half lives. So he does these famous midnight rambles where he and Reese go out between midnight and 5 a.m. He'll put a floppy hat on his head, he'll have a long coat on, he'll walk unbeknownst among the people so then he can see what's actually happening on the street. Roosevelt would wander the streets looking for cops, sleeping or drinking on the job. When he found one, he would goad the man nearly to violence before gleefully introducing himself then demanding the man appear at police headquarters early the next morning. And they find policemen that are sleeping at their posts. They find policemen that are drinking in bars and carousing with prostitutes and are just outraged, and he decides to do something about it. Policemen are fired, people are reassigned, and it, there's immediately a sense that Roosevelt is, is cleaning up the town, like, a, like that kind of Western sheriff that he so admired. The good guys, the white hats are in town, and there's going to be a new way of doing business. This is a mixture of the enforcement part of being police commissioner and playing the theatrics, but the theatrics were not superficial. He has this tremendous sense of right and wrong. Here's this five foot eight inch guy standing up to these massive Irish cops and the public loved it. Cartoons in the daily papers begin to depict Roosevelt carrying a giant paddle inscribed with the word reformer. It's an early display of an attitude he would later make famous as president, with an approach to foreign policy he described as speak softly and carry a big stick. All of a sudden, there are cartoons and papers all across the country showing policemen cowering at the image of these big teeth and the mustache and the whiskers. And again, he becomes a romantic figure fighting corruption in New York, just as he had become in the Badlands, being a cowboy. So he's becoming as one of the newspaper reporters said at the time, the most interesting man in America. This is the moment where TR reaches a new milestone in his political savvy, because he realizes that the press finds him fascinating. Roosevelt also decides that for the department to regain respectability, it needs to be run more professionally. He sees that the police department itself needs to be modernized. He created the first police academy where officers were trained. He standardized the uniforms and the gun training and the guns they could have. He brings typewriters in. He brings in a fingerprint crew, first women secretaries in the police department. Part of what TR enjoys about being the police commissioner is he gets to play the role of enforcer. He played the role of legislator, played the role of cowboy. Now he had an opportunity to go out and enforce reform. Any law that's written on the book he believes needs to be enforced. But his zeal for enforcement leads him to misread his constituents. And this proves to be a major misstep. 
At the time in New York City, there's something called the Sunday excise law. You could not sell liquor. You could not have your saloon open on a Sunday. The problem with the Sunday closing law was that it was not being enforced altogether. They weren't all being closed down. If you wanted to keep your saloon open, you could bribe the police and the politicians. If you couldn't afford the bribe, you were forced to be closed. Or if you tried to open, you'd be arrested. So he saw that this was really the taproot of corruption. So Roosevelt decides that he will actually enforce the law. And the backlash is unbelievable. People are absolutely furious. Back then, New Yorkers worked six days a week. The one day off they had was Sunday. Then they would go to their local tavern, which was kind of a community center, and they would eat and relax a little and spend time with their families and their friends. It was actually an important social institution in the city of New York. Here, Roosevelt's ideals get the better of his political judgment. Roosevelt, always a bit moralistic, always taking the high ground, always a bit impetuous, always doing what's right, and darn the consequences. And he got one of his close friends, Henry Cabot Lodge, saying, you know, Roosevelt, you have to be a little careful about the fights you pick. You don't want to end your career. I don't think he quite understood the role that saloons played in the lives and cultures of working-class immigrants. The reaction is terrible. He goes from populist hero to pariah. There were death threats. A bomb was sent to headquarters on Mulberry Street. But Roosevelt is not discouraged, and he doesn't hide in his headquarters. Instead, he meets the protesters in the streets, and when they hurl insults, T.R. joins in, making fun of himself, too. He shows that he is capable of laughing at himself. So it's a great capacity where self-deprecating humor can win you over and make people realize he's doing something we don't like, maybe he's doing it for his reasons, but he's okay. But still, between 12 and 15,000 saloons in New York were shut on Sundays. And in the next city elections, the Republicans go down and they lose hard and they blame one person for that, and that's Theodore Roosevelt. This was a failure. He had failed. He recognized that he had failed because he had not gotten the people behind him. His career in New York City is absolutely finished. But he does not want his career in politics to be finished as well. Roosevelt needs a new platform. He needs to find a graceful way out. So he goes to campaign for McKinley who's running for president in the hopes perhaps he can be given a job in the new administration. McKinley was a little suspicious because he viewed T.R. as a bull in a china shop, as they say, a man who broke a lot of glasses. T.R. always longed for more. He was endlessly ambitious. And he is a natural on the campaign trail. They jammed the aisles to come to hear him speak. This was where his compulsion to be the center of attention really works for him because there's a magnetic feel that people come and want to be in his presence. Alice had always said that he wanted to be the baby at the baptism, the bride at the wedding, and the corpse at the funeral. He so loved being the center of attention. McKinley wins the election, and he finally, under pressure, gives him the job of Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And it's exactly what T.R. wants. Roosevelt is a scholar of military history and a person who believes that America needs to project its strength abroad. And he argues essentially that all the great powers in history have always been strengthened by a powerful naval force. 
Once again, he finds an organization in need of an overhaul, and Roosevelt is more than willing to take the helm. TR looked at the American Navy and was aghast to see how far down, I think we were like the ninth largest Navy in the world after somewhere like Peru or Ecuador. So he did everything he could to build it up, particularly in battleships. America had a long-standing notion of isolationism, of staying out of world affairs. But Roosevelt thought that we had to be isolationist back in the 1790s. But now in the 1890s, we are the strongest economic power in the world. We have an obligation to help others. We can't be weak. We can't be an invalid nation. We have to project that power. Roosevelt's hawkish views emerge from his feeling that his generation needs to prove itself and that the battlefield is an essential test. He once said, I should welcome almost any war, for I think this country needs one. And he could readily see the potential for war with Spain. As Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he urges his commander to focus U.S. defenses on Cuba. In a letter to the Secretary of the Navy, John Long, T.R. writes, If we have war with Spain, there will be immediate need for every gunboat and cruiser that we can possibly get together to blockade Cuba. When the war comes, it should come finally on our initiative and after we had had time to prepare. If we drift into it, if we do not prepare in advance, we may have to encounter one or two bitter humiliations, and we shall certainly be forced to spend the first three of our most important weeks not in striking, but in making those preparations to strike, which we should have made long before. And his prediction of war will soon come to pass. The game-changing event is the Spanish-American War. Spain is one of the oldest European powers to have possessions in the New World. Cuba is by far the most important possession Spain has in the Caribbean. Roosevelt believed that this was an oppressed people that we needed to go help, but also this was an opportunity to pick a fight with a European power. And Roosevelt was always looking to pick a fight. That's next time on Making Teddy. Making Teddy is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Eli Lara, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. Ben Dickstein, the senior producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard is the associate producer. Max Michael Miller edited and mixed this episode. The television series, Theodore Roosevelt, was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel.